Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you and we bring you praise for who you are. You are the only king forever and you are the almighty God. No one else deserves any praise but you. And, and we are grateful, Lord, that we get to experience, that we get to worship together right now as the church. And we will continue doing that into eternity. Lord, I ask that this morning I would be less and you would be more. I ask that your scripture would move, that your spirit would move, and that your truth would be known. You are wonderful, and your resurrection gives us hope, Lord. Amen. Good evening and good morning for those who are watching. Um, we're, we're continuing our series on the resurrection today, and I'm really grateful for the focus on the resurrection in this series. It's been such a blessing and a reminder of how important it is for us to regularly be focused on the resurrection. Um, the resurrection of the dead, and even more specifically, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, is a foundational component for the sanctification uh, and our Christian walk. Um, the way the resurrection works and looks will influence how we respond to anything and everything that this life throws at us. It defines our response to life's biggest tragedies, particularly death and the loss of loved ones. Yes, Easter is where we make an extra effort to focus on Jesus' resurrection and that for the sake of celebrating it um, and what it means but we should be living in light of the resurrection on a daily basis. That's part of why our church is named Risen Hope indefinitely. It's, it's not just this time of year. Um, last week, J JT preached on the practical implications of the resurrection, how death has been swallowed up, and how that means that we have an invincible hope that our labor and perseverance as the saints is not in vain. This week, we're gonna be moving back to 1 Corinthians 15, Verses, 14, uh, verses 35 through 49 to appreciate the nature of the resurrection, what it will look like, why it will be different, and what that means for us in our current pre-resurrection condition. The passage begins with Paul directly referring to a question that some at the church in Corinth had made. His immediate response to the question is actually to rebuke them. He says, but some will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? And he says, you foolish person. Reading this verse, the severity of his response can be a bit surprising, especially since he, not long after this, goes on to give a detailed and important explanation, which we'll be spending most of our time in today. But to understand his reaction, it's important for us to remember the context of his writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, the city of Corinth prospered as a major trade city for centuries. It even hosted the Isthmian Games, which were second in fame only to the Olympics. I still had never heard of them, though. Um, <laughs> its rapid growth and popularity have a strong correlation with the moral corruption and debauchery that became synonymous with the city and its people. This was the culture that the converts in the church came from. And as a consequence, the church severely struggled with breaking away from their culture, and it even led to factions in the church. And I don't think this should be a surprise for us. I think it's safe to say that we, as Americans, struggle against our culture and its innate opposition to the gospel. 
So this letter is very much a letter that wrote that Paul wrote in correction of the church. He was aware of the culture they came from and how it would lead to the questions that they asked him. He knew that some of the pagan beliefs declared that anything physical was intrinsically evil, so the idea of our physical bodies being resurrected was vile and nearly unacceptable for them because of their previous way of thinking. He knew that there was influence among the Jews there from the Sadducees who rejected the resurrection. Regardless, there are Old Testament teachings as well as the teachings of Christ and the teachings of the apostles that the church already had which made the truth of the resurrection clear. Hence Paul's rebuke for them mockingly or ignorantly asking the questions that they should have already known the answer to. But in in reflection of God's graciousness, Paul moves on from his rebuke to elaborate and answer their questions. He says, how are the dead raised? And, or the questions are, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And then the text launches into a beautiful description and illustration of God's intentionality and capability of resurrecting, of resurrection, despite their doubts. Let's read verses 36 to 42. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. So right off the bat, Paul dashes any concerns that our resurrected bodies will simply be the same body we had moments before we died. He actually confirms that our physical bodies must die or end before our resurrected bodies begin. The description of a bare kernel is given for what we currently have, which logically and beautifully leads us to recognize not just that our resurrected bodies will be our true and ultimately intended nature, but also that it's something that we can't even begin to imagine how, great, how much greater it will be. Think of it like this, just like you couldn't even begin to imagine or describe a chrysanthemum flower, the beauty, the smell, every minute detail of it, if you had only ever seen the seed. In the same way, that's how much better and greater God's ultimate design for us will be. It's unimaginably greater. And after Paul illustrates God's design for that, he goes on to illustrate God's design for the bodies of everything he's made. Right now, on this side of eternity, we have the evidence that God is more than capable of making specific, detailed, and completely different creations. And right now, we can see the glory of his creation. Animals, birds, fish, the clouds in the sky, the massive mountains like Rainier and Baker that reach up to them, and how everything that our eyes can reach, the moon, the sun, and galaxies, bo- galaxies beyond, are completely unique and intentional and glorious. 
They're meant to point, a, point us and join us in worshiping God. Um, Psalm 33 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Giving attention to these things now alone brings me to worship the Lord for his greatness, but our worship for his greatness won't stop at the creation we see now. Just like our bodies right now are not what is to be in the resurrection, in verse 38 we're shown that each kind of seed, everything else we just looked at, is not what it is ultimately going to be. It all has an eventual, fulfilled, and true nature that we can't even begin to imagine how great it is. It's verses like this that cause me to overflow with confidence that the truth, in the truth, that our God is worthy of eternal praise, because if you look around, you can't even stop praising him for what we see now, and we can't even imagine what is going to be. Yes, our God is intentional. He provides everything glorious, but even more so, what we'll receive and what we'll be resurrected as is an inheritance that we can't begin to fully comprehend but we do have confidence that it will exceed anything we can imagine. And that's something that should directly influence our time here at this side of eternity before the resurrection. So how does keeping that truth and these details on our minds influence our walk and our sanctification? Other than spelling out the answer for those skeptical questions or ignorant questions, why is it important for followers of Christ to understand this? Let's read verses 42 through 44. Paul goes on to say, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul lists several contrasts here that reveal differences in the outlook of the believer who is found in Christ and the one who has rejected Christ and the gift of God. And as we'll see in a few minutes, all humans since Adam and Eve have the same original condition. We were all born into a sinful nature, and with that we all have bodies that are terminally affected by the fall. I want to unpack what the scriptures say about the condition that we're sown in first. And a fair warning, this is going to be bleak. But just know that for those who are found in Christ, it gets so much better. Still, these are real themes that have a daily and real effect on us, this side of eternity. And it would be a shame for us to ignore how Scripture acknowledges them. If we're going to ignore this or even pass over it with any degree of insincerity, we would miss out on praise and glory that is due to our God, as well as encouragement and emboldening. So Paul says that what is sown is perishable and natural. It's been said that the global death rate is 100%. Everyone dies. Our, our bodies are prone to sickness and deterioration. There's no one on the planet whose physical body is naturally growing more resilient and stronger. Even the Olympic athlete or the Isthmian athlete, the most prime fit pr physical specimens, they're fighting against the frailty of our perishable condition. It's an upstream effort that will end the same for everyone. And when it ends, it ends. 
There isn't a single human in history whose current physical body has persisted into eternity. Some of you might say, well, what about Enoch or Elijah? They didn't die. <laughs> um, they were just taken up to heaven or in a whirlwind. Yes, that's true. But if we look at those events in, through the lens of scripture, I think it's safe for us to make the interpretation that the same thing happened for them that will happen for all believers that are still alive when Christ returns. Um, this is actually described in one of the verses JT read last week. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all shall be changed. So still the point remains that our bodies are not eternal. And even in their temporal existence, they're ultimately on a constant and fixed path of degeneration. Paul goes on to say that what is sown is sown in dishonor. The results of the fall and what we were born into is not only pervasive to our physical condition, our skin, our muscles, bones, and organs, our external and ex internal health, but also to the way our minds work, our thinking, has been inescapably stained. This is so important for the believer to recognize. Yes, we have been made new, and praise be to God for that. Because of that, our direction has changed. We, we have been cleansed from skin, sin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Little issue with the iPad, technical glitches. <laughs> Okay. But our thinking has also been inescapably stained. Um, because of that, our direction has changed. We are cleansed of sin and free of the slavery and bondage of it, now belonging to Christ. But if we are to believe and say that that means we don't sin anymore, then we're fools indeed. First John makes this very clear. It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. We sin, period. At least this side of eternity. Our righteousness is flawed, and it falls short of the glory of God. Our minds are against God, just like Adam and Eve's were when they de were deceived and sinned against the Lord. And following our minds, which have shameful and dishonorable natures, we see that what is sown is sown in weakness, this concerns our ability in responding to sin and temptation. Again, we don't ignore that as born-again believers, we possess the Holy Spirit of the living God, the same spirit that Jesus Christ himself depended on to overcome all temptations. It's not a question of our new direction or practice in relation to sin, but rather our natural condition, our natural weakness in temptation, this is why scripture spends a lot of time teaching, instructing, and presenting examples of how we are to pers persevere in light of our natural weakness in resisting temptation. To present a few examples, though there's a lot more in the Bible, um, in, in Ephesians we're taught to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. To the same point, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We're urged to be prepared and equipped to face evil, which isn't just the devil or this world, but our very own sinful nature. In the Old Testament, David gives us the example to pray. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And through the prophet Jeremiah, God says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It should be, of course, be our regular practice to go to God for help in keeping us from our sins. We should always depend on him. But even more than that, we need his help for sins that we don't even know about. Our own flesh is working against us. What better evidence to and confirmation of our weakness and temptation than the fact that we need to depend on the Lord to keep us from things we aren't even aware of. So why do we spend all this time digging into the truth of our current condition? Why focus on this bleak, depressing, and terminal condition of our bodies and minds before the resurrection? Well, I pray that you'll find encouragement in the answer. In fact, if there's anything that stays with you from this time, I hope that it's the, that what we find in the answer here and what it directs us to. To expand on the second positive half of each comparison we looked at, we're gonna read another passage from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. It may be a little long to read, but I believe it's an appropriate thing to read for the verses we're studying here because it's not just supporting scripture or parallel ideas, but it's in fact a first person testimony by Paul and the saints experiencing these negatives of our pre-resurrection condition and what the positives of the resurrection do for how they, for how we respond to that suffering. We'll be in 2 Corinthians 4, reading verses 7 through 18. And it says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and bring you with us into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we, look into the, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This passage is so rich. A whole sermon series, multiple sermon series, could be dedicated to it alone. In fact, we had a five-week study on the weight of glory a little more than a year ago. So I encourage you guys to take some time to soak up everything written here for your own edification. But for now, we're going to focus on how it specifically resonates with the difference of our sown bodies and our raised bodies. Verses 7 through 12 mirror and confirm the presentation of our limited condition that we were looking at in 1 Corinthians 15. Because of our perishable, dishonorable, weak, natural bodies, we will experience affliction, we'll find our minds perplexed, we'll endure persecution, and we'll be struck down. But each of these descriptions is paired with a promise for the believer, an assurance that God is faithful and will never let our suffering take us past the brink. This is such a comforting recognition of God's, face, of, of God's faithfulness as we persevere in life. And even in verse 13, Paul quotes the Old Testament saying, I believe and so I spoke. He does this to affirm that he is walking by faith first. He already believes in God and God's promise to deliver him from these trials. And because of that, he can confidently be encouraged and make his prayer for deliverance. But there's an even deeper encouragement found in our suffering, specifically why we suffer even more because of the work we have set before us as believers. That's why persecution is included in the ailments we'll face. So what is it that adds to the comfort of God's faithfulness? Well, Paul goes on to say, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you, the fellow believers, into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. This is the gospel at work. This is a snapshot of healthy Christian motivation. When we understand the good news and respond in faith in Jesus Christ, we have hope in the resurrection. Regardless of any pain and suffering we experience this side of eternity, we know that we will be brought into the Lord's presence at the end. And listen to the way that Paul expresses this encouragement. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We do not lose heart. Paul says in a following verse, we are always of good courage. We don't lose heart and we are always of good courage despite our suffering. Because our suffering, this real suffering, this pain, this limited, frail, weak condition we're in, will not endure. Now please understand, when our condition and our suffering is declared as light, a light affliction, it's not meant to lessen the significance of what we endure, endure this side of eternity. And it's certainly not meant to shame us for our struggles. Don't forget that Paul literally just spent a whole paragraph giving the details of how serious his suffering is, even describing himself as always being given over to death. No, this doesn't lessen what we experience in our pre-resurrection bodies. 
but instead it magnifies and gives us a taste of how incredibly glorious eternity in the presence of our God will be. When we live in light of the gospel, we carry in a, when we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus, the continued and repeated reaction as we're sanctified is to respond by looking to him more and more. We respond to our present and real afflictions by looking to future blessings, by looking to the glory of God. And this is where the comparison gets a little mind-blowing for me. When we respond in this way, the scriptures describe it as only a preparation for what is to come. So take this slowly. Us looking to God, that action that we do as we're getting um, sanctified, that exercise that we're encouraged by and filled by in this life is only practice. It's only the beginning. The glory of God that we will witness and experience when we've been resurrected with Christ is a glorious weight beyond all comparison. That is why we can boldly recognize our present condition as light, momentary, and transient, because it is not what is to be. It's but a bare kernel that will end and be replaced with something unending and entirely focused on God. Do you see how the nature of the resurrection is fundamental to our hope? Back in 1 Corinthians, if you'll turn back with me to chapter 15, Paul wraps up his description and his answer to those questions in the only appropriate way, by directing us back to Christ Jesus. Let's read verses 45 through 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We're all descended from Adam. He's the prototype for the natural. Not only have we inherited his natural and cursed body, that is his physical condition, which is susceptible to sickness and perishable in nature, as we already discussed, but we've also inherited the consequences of sin on the natural, that being a sinful nature, a broken way of thinking that has caused us all to fall short of the glory of God and be weak in temptation. Our condition, every, human, every human's condition from the beginning of history is based on Adam. Our natural bodies bear the image of Adam, the man of dust. The passage says the natural, it is the natural first and then the spiritual. Because of the description that the Bible gives us of sin's effect on humans, we know that our hearts are just like Adam's apart from Christ. We're just like this world. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. We're inclined to rejecting God and rebelling against God, being deceived by the devil, doing and determining what is right in our own eyes. Apart from Christ, we would hate God. And our ultimate destination would be a, f a reflection of that. We would be hopeless. The bleak presentation of suffering that we looked at earlier would, would persist to its completion. 
we would be afflicted in every way and crushed, perplexed and driven to despair. We would be forsaken, struck down, and destroyed. The only resurrection we would have to look forward to is being raised into everlasting and ever-appropriate condemnation. That is the truth of our condition in Adam, the truth of our natural bodies left alone. But we know the story doesn't end there for those who are found in Christ. The natural is first, and then the spiritual. And praise be to God that he gave us his son, a life-giving spirit, who lived a perfect life, overcoming sin and temptation by the spirit, and eventually dying as a criminal, paying the debt we owed so that if we trust in him alone and repent, we may be as him who is in heaven and look forward to when our physical bodies and minds will be as our hearts already are, made new in the image of Christ, the one who is of heaven. Listen to these words from 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heaven, heavenly dwelling. If, in, excuse me, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd, we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That is the truth of our condition in Christ. We have hope and a guarantee. We have hope and a guarantee that our dishonorable minds will be made new and fully righteous. Hope and a guarantee that our frailness in temptation will be made new and swallowed up by the strength of the Spirit. We have hope and a guarantee that our physical ailments and our eventual physical death will be made new and we will finally be completed, being raised with Christ in the nature that God has chosen for us from the beginning. So then, in light of that truth, in light of the nature of the resurrection, we do not lose heart and we persist in extending grace and sharing the good news to more and more people so that more glory may be brought to God through the salvation of souls. Please pray with me. God, you are glorious. I thank you, Lord, that we have a future hope to look forward to that that future hope is more real than what we know now, that that future hope will make what we have right now look like a bare kernel. And Lord, I ask that we would, we would soberly recognize this as we endure suffering, because that is ever, ever present. Just like Paul said, every day we're being given over to death. We experience it in this world every day. And Lord, if it pleases you, I ask that we would turn to you every time we experience suffering, turn to you so that we can give glory to you by looking forward to what will be and by telling others what is available to them. May all the glory be to you. Amen.